This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Dear Father, as we come before you today, uh, we pray that you may help us to put aside our concerns and worries and cares and to really apply our minds to your word so that we will be able to take to heart what it says. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, there was a very famous song many, many years ago by this very famous band uh, called the Rolling Stones, right? And uh, the name of the song is, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. And the main, uh, I guess, chorus of the song is, you know, he tries, he tries, he tries, but he still can't get no satisfaction. Now, when I watched, uh, or I was listening to the song in the beginning, you sort of think, oh, okay, because it's the Rolling Stones, it must be some sort of sexual connotations to it. But actually, when you look at the lyrics, it doesn't really have sexual connotations to it at all. It's about the dissatisfaction of life. Right? He's trying, he's trying, he's trying to be all these things, but he can't get no satisfaction. And I think that's the big theme of what we're looking at in the book of Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and 6. It is the theme of satisfaction, or more precisely, the theme of the lack of satisfaction. Because last week, uh, as we looked at chapter 5, it introduced us to the theme of the person who is loving money, but never has money enough. The person who loves wealth, but is never satisfied with their wealth. And as you look at chapter 6, this theme of dissatisfaction, or discontentment, is the same theme that runs through it. So last week we saw that because of dissatisfaction, with life in general because of the pursuit of wealth, it leads that person to darkness, frustration, anger, and despair. But as we come to the end of chapter 5, we saw that the teacher in the book of Ecclesiastes brings us the ray of light, the solution to the problem of dissatisfaction. And the solution to dissatisfaction was the recognition that actually God was the God who gives, and as he gives, we are to give thanks and accept the lot that he gives us. So if you remember chapter 5, verse 18 to 20, that the theme of God, who is the giver, giving us these things, the possessions, the wealth, our work, and us accepting our lot, is part of the secret to satisfaction in this life. Now, as we come to chapter 6 then, This is sort of like the background or the context of how we read chapter 6. Because if you don't sort of read it with that background, it doesn't quite make sense as it stands by itself. So as we look at chapter 6, verse 1 to 2, and you need to have your Bibles open in front of you, because you need to follow what the text is saying very closely, because I'm going to be interacting with the text quite a lot. It says in verse 1, I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily, on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions and honor so that they lack nothing their hearts desire. But God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them enjoy, and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. Now what we see here is a paradox because it's actually saying that this person has everything. They have everything that they they, they desire, wealth, possessions, honor. But the paradox is that at yet the same time, these people 
do not enjoy them. They are incapable of enjoying them because God doesn't give them the ability to enjoy it. Now, if you wanted to be very technical, you could actually go back to chapter 5 and actually see in the last chapter that God is the one who gives people the ability to actually have gladness and heart and the ability to enjoy things. But I think that at the same time, we're told enough in chapter 5 to recognize that it is because of the desires of individuals, the love of wealth, the love of money, the love of possessions, which leads to this dissatisfaction and the lack of enjoyment in life. So this lack of enjoyment, if you see, look back at chapter 5, right? you see that there are many reasons how this lack of satisfaction comes because people love money right? and they keep toiling away endlessly at it. So in verse 12 it says, The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner. All his days he eats in darkness, with great frustration, affliction, and anger. So, for those of you who missed last week's sermon, you can always look at it on the, on the, uh, on the internet. Or, you can, uh, if you went to the Bible study, you can go to the text again. But, to remind ourselves, right, part of the problem is, if you have this insatiable desire for more and more, it leads you to worries. And the worries lead you to the inability to enjoy the fruits of your labor. But, you eat in darkness because you're frustrated all the time in your inability to get more and more. And you will always want to get more because you will never be satisfied. Because you're always chasing that, that, that target, the distance which you will never arrive to. So I remember referring to this illustration, I think much earlier on in the series, where there's this book where I read called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, right? Because uh, they're not so stressed apparently. But we get ulcers because... We're always wanting more. And part of the reason why we want more is our dissatisfaction with what we already have. So, uh, in the book I was, I was reading, they gave this illustration about how uh, women were asked to rate how attractive they feel. Uh, and then they would be given a picture of a supermodel, right? And then they would compare themselves to the supermodel, then they would rate themselves lower. In the same way, men would be asked to ask how satisfied they were with their wife, and then again, if they were shown a picture of a supermodel, then again, their, their satisfaction with their wife would be less. So in the same way, it's a bit like, okay, we're not talking about wise or, or, or your attractiveness, but in the same way, if you keep comparing yourself to others, you will always be wanting more. You will never be able to be satisfied because there will be this dissatisfaction in you. You can't enjoy the things that you already have. Your life will be full of frustration and toil and affliction. But in this other book I was reading, right, this Dollars and Cents book, it isn't just us comparing ourselves to other people. Uh, I was reading this book and I was, I was, uh, it was quite very profound because we, we, we don't just compare ourselves to other people, we compare ourselves to ourselves. Now you could sort of say, what do you mean compare yourself to yourself? I am myself, right? How can I compare myself to myself? But what this book was actually saying is, subtly, subconsciously, we're always comparing ourselves to what we could have been. The more better models of ourselves, the, 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 the ourselves who never make mistakes, uh, the ourselves who seized every opportunity in life, the ourselves who would always be successful. 
You know, so in, in life, you know, I find it for myself as well. You, you sometimes are regretful, right? Because you look back at your life and you think, how much better I could have been? How much more I could have been? And that in itself leads to dissatisfaction and unhappiness and discontentment. And here the teacher says that it is meaningless, right? It's meaningless because this person never enjoys what they already have because they're filled with dissatisfaction. But in verse 3 to 6, the teacher goes on to develop this idea and he adds a few details to this person. A man may have a hundred children and live many years. Yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that this so that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning, it departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity, do not all go to the same place. Now in the ancient world, to be blessed or to have people look at you and say, oh, you know, you have a really good life, you require a few things. One of them would be a large family. I mean, maybe in today's world, uh, people look at you with a large family and they think, how sad for you, right? You've got to spend so much time looking after them and paying all their bills and worrying about all their troubles. But in the ancient world, having a large family was a great blessing. Right? The bigger the family, the, 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 the better it was. Here this person has a hundred children. This is hypothetical, right? Or it could be King Solomon, who knows? But not only does this uh, person have a large family, but this person lives a long life. Again, another blessing in life. Together with the many children, the long life, this person has many possessions and great wealth. This person has a trifecta of blessings in his life. But yet, the teacher goes on to say that if he does not enjoy his possessions, then it is meaningless. But on top of that, it says, if he does not enjoy his prosperity and also does not receive a proper burial. Now, he's not talking about ancestor worship because, you know, this is not the Chinese context. Okay? This is ancient Near East. This is in the ancient uh, Israel. It's not about uh, ancestor worship. I think what is being said here is he didn't receive a proper burial because he was unloved. Same thing, fundamentally, this person doesn't enjoy life and he doesn't have love in his life. So, it's almost as if, if, if we go back to what we, we have read in the earlier part of chapter 6, this person is so busy working that he has no time for his children, so that when he dies, the children have no time for him. He wasn't there for them. And then when he dies, they are not there for him as well. We see the same idea in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. right? So there are a lot of ideas now. As we go through Ecclesiastes, you can see that 
ideas are being drawn from different places. Where we again saw the person who loved money. And in verse 7 of chapter 4, it says, Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. So here, this hypothetical person has all the blessings in life, but he lacks two things. He cannot enjoy what he has, and he has no love in his life. And here the teacher says that compared to this man, a stillborn child, a a, a baby born at birth is better off than this man. So if you look at the diagram which I put for you here, right, next slide. He's saying, better to die at birth, to have no life, than to have hundreds of children, live a long time, have many possessions, but you don't enjoy them, and you have no love in your life. Now I think if you look at the passage, it's, it's a bit confusing. You think, well, well, how can that be, right? Because it doesn't seem to make sense, this equation. But if you look closely here, in verse 5, he says that this equation works because though the baby never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than that man. So, what it's saying here is this person has no rest. They're so busy working and toiling and striving and achieving, going after the next thing that they need in their life, that they have no rest. And this baby who died at birth has more rest than this man. Now, in the Bible, the concept of rest is actually very important because God commanded the Jews to rest one day every six. Right? So it's part of the Ten Commandments. right? So in Exodus chapter 20, they were meant to keep the Sabbath day. Right? They shall labor six days, but on the seventh day is the Sabbath. Nobody is to work. They are to rest on the Sabbath day. But here we find that this man who loves money never satisfied, is toiling away endlessly and there is no rest. And the teacher says, this is meaningless. This is, this is worse than a child born dead at birth. Now, when I was preparing the sermon, I was sort of thinking, surely there can be some way of explaining what the teacher is saying to understand what he's saying in terms of the depth of the meaninglessness of just toiling and toiling without rest. So it occurred to me that actually in, in Greek mythology, you know, for, for those of you who know Greek mythology, there's this guy, guy called Sisyphus. How? Sisyphus. Okay, I, I don't know how to pronounce his name very well. Sisyphus, right? And uh, basically, the, the gods... Right, condemned him because he rebelled against the gods. I can't remember the story. You can read it on Wikipedia. Okay. So the gods, uh, there's this guy who rebelled against the gods. He, the gods condemned him to roll 
or carry this stone up to the top of the mountain and, and it, it would fall down day after day, right? And it was sort of like a, a, a story of, of endless, futile effort. And I think that that's the picture that we see in the passage here. Right? It's like the man's life who loves money and is toiling endlessly is like a guy pushing a boulder up the hill and, and the boulder keeps falling down every day and you just keep endlessly pushing this boulder up the hill. It, it is a picture of frustration, affliction and suffering. And that's exactly what the teacher is saying here. That given the choice of a life of Sisyphus, right, of pushing up a stone up the hill day after day endlessly for the whole of your life, it is better not to be born. So the teacher goes on to speak in verse 7. And he says, Everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. What advantage have the wise, or wise over fools? What do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So here in verse 7 to 9, he gives a prescription, right, a solution to the problem of dissatisfaction. And he looks at the like a imagery or the metaphor of the mouth. Right? You know, it's, like, it's like the appetite is never satisfied. But the appetite that he's talking about here is not just for food because, you know, I mean, in a way, when, you know, if you eat, you do kind of like satisfy over time. Although, I, don't, I do know friends and relatives who, after we finish breakfast, are talking about lunch already. And I think that's not unusual. But the appetite that he's talking about here is talking about the appetite for more wealth, for more possessions, for more goods, right? And he's saying, you know, the roving of the appetite is meaningless. And the roving here is the idea of where you can't stop your appetite from roving and, and getting more and more. So, you know, it's like, we talk about the roving eye, right? You know? Like, so, you know, like, uh, okay, if you go to the Chico Pei, right? You know, like, he, he's, his eye is roving all the time. So, I, I, I copied this from the Sing- Singlish Dictionary or something, right? So, it's like, you know, it's like, you know, you're like, you're roving and looking at, at, at all these different things, right? And what he's saying here in the book, Ecclesiastes, is the roving appetite which goes everywhere is meaningless. Right? You'll never be satisfied. So what he counsels is better in verse 9. So remember in the book of Ecclesiastes, we keep talking about better. Better what you should do under the sun. Better, therefore, to see or to what your eye sees. So what your eye sees is in front of you, right? But the appetite goes everywhere. But what you see in front of you, you know, be satisfied with that. I remember in the Bible study, uh, last, uh, my Bible study group last week, they were saying the appetite never ends, right? Especially when you go online shopping. Because you know when you have online shopping, your computer is very smart with all these data mining or analytics. You know, you do a search for uh, a chair, then, wow, your Facebook keeps being pelted with numerous chairs for you to think about. And then you look for a bag, and then you, oh, all these handbags come coming onto your, your social media, right? And like your appetite is like never ending. But, but here it says, better what you see in front of you than the roving of the appetite. 
Right? Be satisfied and content with what you have in front of you. Now, I think that there are three main applications here for us, especially uh, for us who are Christians. Right? So, as we've learned in the previous weeks, better, first of all, the first application is to enjoy life. I mean, I, I mean, it seems like it's a very hedonistic thing to say, but as we've said week after week, we're not, we're not here to be hedonistic, right? We're not pursuing pleasure as the goal of life. But what the passage is saying here is better to enjoy right, what you have. And that enjoyment comes when you are not dissatisfied and always wanting more. Right? So, uh, last week, I think was, this thing was in the newspaper, right? It's like, you know, you, you, you should swim in the ocean, right? You should also swim in the sea, enjoy the sunshine, right? Drink in the, the air, uh, like, you know, Snoopy says, you know, like, happiness is, is ice cream, right? So you should just enjoy the things that you, that you have, you know? You, you shouldn't be dissatisfied with the things that you have. It's not that as Christians we cannot enjoy things. We should give thanks and enjoy the things that we have. But the second application comes in that we are able to enjoy them when we receive it with contentment. Because this satisfaction leads for us not to enjoy the things uh, that we have. Um, it's interesting, uh, a couple of months ago, I was with my kids and uh, they bought, uh, we were actually at my family and we bought different ice cream, right? So the different ice cream were all, you know, you go to the ice cream shop, you all buy different ice cream. Funny how the other person's ice cream always tastes better than yours, right? And somehow your choice is never the right choice, you know? Like, actually, I really wanted that chocolate, but I got honeycomb instead, you know, whatever lah. But there's always this dissatisfaction, right? And you can't enjoy the thing you already have because you want what somebody else had. But I think biblically, as we read in our responsive reading, contentment is actually a quality that is commended to us as Christians because this dissatisfaction and the chasing after of wealth leads us to walk away from our faith. It leads us to spend time focusing on the worldly things rather than the heavenly things. And it makes us wander from faith and pierce ourselves with many griefs. So here as we look at this passage, I think the, the theme of contentment comes through again. That you can gain the whole world, right, Jesus said, but you lose your very soul. You can chase after all these things, but you actually lose your relationship with God. The last theme, I think, is a theme which we don't really talk about very much, is the theme of rest. Because here in this passage, it seems to be very strongly coming through that the stillborn child is more worth uh, living, worthwhile than the person who lives thousands of years but never rests. Because rest seems to be something that God says is important. But as we come to the New Testament, I think the theme of rest is not so much the Sabbath, rest one, one every six, uh, six days, uh, seven days, but the Sabbath rest itself points us to the eternal rest that we have in heaven. Right? So in Hebrews chapter 4, uh, it says to us, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will fall 
by following the example of disobedience. So I think the idea of rest is very important for us as Christians, and as we rest, we're actually looking forward to the Sabbath rest of God. So I remember talking to someone who used to come to our church, but doesn't come anymore. And this person was a single person, and worked five days a week very hard, and on the weekends gave tuition, right, Saturday and Sunday. And today is no longer in church, I don't think they're a Christian anymore. And I used to consider why this person works so hard. I mean, it's like, what are you working for, right? In the sense, is it worth not resting and actually coming to church and, and, and listening to God's word and being encouraged in faith? And I think that rest in itself is an, actually an opportunity for us to remember the eternal rest that we are going to enter in forever. I mean, uh, the Sabbath rest itself is not the be-all and end-all. It actually points to the eternal rest that we are going to have in heaven. Now, the third application, um, and actually it's very interesting because this is such a short passage, but there's so many things to, to reflect upon, is the idea of how this man doesn't get a proper burial. And I think it says something here because he invests all his time in wealth and possessions. But it doesn't seem as if he invests any of his time in his children or his relationships. Now, I, don't, not, I'm, I was trying to figure out how we're going to apply this into being a Christian, but, but, but within this passage, it seems to suggest that the investment in love and family and relationships is more valuable than the endless pursuit of more and more wealth. And it caused me to consider for myself, right? If I were to die today, you know, how much have I affected or impacted other people with and through my life? Right? Like, have I actually uh, affected someone's Christian walk or have I affected them in such a way that there's actually a benefit for them? And I think that for us as people who have families, especially, uh, this is something that we should reflect upon, right? Uh, in terms of how much time do we give to our careers or our uh, you know, businesses compared to investing in our own children. Uh, I remember traveling once from Singapore to Sydney when I was very young, uh, going to boarding school. And I sat next to a lady and a daughter and um, I got to talking to them, they were from Singapore. And I asked them why they were going to Australia for holiday. And the mother said to me that she was going on holiday with the daughter because they were going to let the maid go and she needed to re-establish a relationship with her daughter. Uh, she was a businesswoman. It sort of got me thinking, right, that it's, it's something quite, not quite right there, right, where you actually have to go on holiday to re-establish a relationship with your daughter, right? So does that mean that uh, you don't really have a relationship with your daughter to begin with, or if the mate wasn't going away, you wouldn't bother going on holiday, right? It, it, to me, I just felt that there was something not quite right there. And I think that as you look at this passage, you know, all the more is the idea that actually, especially as Christians, we recognize that the things which are eternal are our relationships, especially with other Christians. 
So, uh, yeah, I was going to show you this picture, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, I've got two pictures for you today. Anyway, famous pictures. So, I'm always trying to, you know, improve your culture, right? So, anyway, there's a very, there's a very famous picture called Nighthawks here by a very famous uh, American artist called Edward Hopper. You can, you can, he's got lots of pictures on the internet, right? And this is one of his most famous pictures. But it's actually a picture. Oh, no, 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 don't, don't change that one. Yeah, well, stay, uh, sorry, next one. Uh, okay, stay this one, yeah. Okay, so that's yeah, the next one. And that's actually a picture that he, uh, that he painted, which is meant to depict uh, loneliness, right? Or the loneliness of urban living. And I think it's very true, right? Because as we live in cities, especially now in our interconnected internet age, we, we don't connect so much with people, right? And I think that especially as, uh, as we look at this passage, it's actually saying, look, invest in relationships, invest in love, invest in, in family, right? rather than being insatiably going after uh, money. So now we come to the last section of uh, the chapter 6. So in verse 10 it says, oh, you can turn it off now. Whoever exists has already been, sorry, whatever exists has already been named. And what humanity is has been known. No one can contend with someone who is stronger the more the words, the less the meaning. And how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days they pass through like a shadow? Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? Now here we look at verse 10 to verse uh, 13, right? Or verse 12, sorry. And it's really a series of questions, right? And the implication is actually found in answering the question. So, whatever exists has already been named. Who, who is the teacher thinking about? Who has named what? Right? Whatever exists has been named by who? Well, I think the answer must be God, right? Whatever exists has been named by God, has been known by God. Right? What, what humanity is has been known. Only God knows what humanity is like. Only God knows what life is like. So no one can contend, can fight or argue with someone who is stronger. We can't argue or contend or fight against God. So based on God knowing everything, naming everything, we can't contend against God. The more the words, the less the meaning. How does that profit anyone. So it's almost here like the teacher is getting a bit depressed or very depressed. And he's sort of saying, look, you know, I've spent all this time writing all these words and I'm still back at the beginning. I haven't found meaning in life under the sun. Right? The more words I've written, the less meaning I've actually managed to extract out of it. For who knows what is good for a person in life during the few and meaningless days, they pass through like a shadow. So this is like a question of despair, right? So at the end of the day, what's the point? Who really knows what is good for a person in life? During the short, meaningless life that we pass through, we're like a shadow. You know a shadow? It's, like it's just a fleeting thing. Our lives are so short, right? It's, like it's meaningless. Who can tell them what will happen under the sun? After they are gone. Now, 
I think as we come to the very end of uh, this passage, it's actually halfway through the book of Ecclesiastes. Right? So congratulations, you know, we're halfway through. And as we come to halfway, it's almost as if the, the mood of the writer and the teacher is one of despair. Right? It's like he's trying to find meaning under the sun. And he's, he's looked at pleasure, he's looked at money, he's looked at wisdom, he's looked at everything you can consider. right? And there is no meaning. So I think that as we come to the end of uh, this chapter, it, it kind of like reminded me of this picture as well right, that I saw many years ago. It's called The Scream. Okay? So this is like one of the most famous pictures in uh, like modern art, right? The Scream. And uh, it's quite haunting actually, when you think about it. But anyway, so the, the, let me explain to you why the scream is supposed to be so famous. So the scream, uh, next slide, uh, is one of those images that sums up a turning point in history, as she explains. It presents a man cut loose from all the certainties that had comforted him up until that point in the 19th century. There is no God now, no tradition, no habits or customs, just poor man in a moment of existential crisis, facing a universe he doesn't understand and can only relate to in a feeling of panic. She adds, that may sound very negative, but that is the modern state. This is what distinguishes modern man from the post-Renaissance history up until that moment. This feeling that we have lost all the anchors that bind us to the world. Okay, so this is by the art historian who like, uh, showed this picture in an uh, uh, exhibition. Right? So I think as we come to the end of this chapter, this is kind of like the mood of the passage. It's like there is no meaning. It's, 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 like, it's like panic. It's like the, the picture of the poor person in the screen. Right? It's like you can't find meaning under the sun. So as we end this, um, this chapter together, uh, I kind of like, I was, I was considering maybe we just end the, the sermon like this, right? Because this is exactly how it's supposed to end, right? It's supposed to force you to see the meaninglessness of trying to find meaning in life under the sun. But the thing that as Christians, if you look at the questions which are being asked, right? Who knows what is good for a person in life during the few meaningless days they pass through like a shadow? Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they are gone? Well, I think as Christians, we know the answer, right? And we know that the answer is God. Uh, we know that the answer is Jesus Christ, who has come from God, who does show us the future, and does allow us to live beyond this life. So I think for us as Christians, uh, if you go back again, go, uh, go back to the picture, right? for us as Christians, we don't end... Ecclesiastes chapter 6 with that feeling of oppression and doom and panic and despair. But rather as Christians, we are able to answer the question at the end of chapter 6. We know what is good in life. We know what happens beyond this short and meaningless life. We know what happens after we die. In a sense, we don't have the despair that the teacher feels at the end of chapter 6. So I hope that as we look at this passage today, it's really an encouragement for us all the more uh, to hold on to what we've been uh, given in Jesus Christ. Uh, The wisdom of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus, the promise of eternal life that comes through Jesus Christ. Okay, let's close our time with a word of prayer.
Dear Father, as we come before you today, we truly want to thank you for your word, how it's so brutally honest, and how it tries to look at life under the sun, and it looks at it unflinchingly, and recognizes that there is no meaning under the sun. But we thank you that we live this side of the cross, and that through Jesus, we have one who has come from beyond the sun. He has come from you, and has revealed to us what happens, what is really good in this life, who has saved us to eternal life, and who brings us from the darkness into the light. So we pray that as we reflect on Ecclesiastes chapter 6, all the more we would hold on tightly uh, to your word in the Bible, to Jesus Christ. For we know that there is no other way uh, in this world to truly find satisfaction and meaning. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busytc.sg